Welcome to episode 178 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. I'm doing well. And we are back in the United States, or whatever you want to call this country nowadays. And <laughs> it it means that the Australian Open is over. How are you doing in sort of your post-slam recovery? We're recording this quite a few days after. It's Friday now. Hopefully you're more or less back to having your land legs or whatever you call it. I don't know. Yeah, I got whacked upside the head with jet lag yesterday um, that came out of nowhere. Um, otherwise, I had been fine, but I don't know. That generally tends to be the case. It usually hits me a few days later. But yeah, otherwise, happy to be home. Intentionally kind of like keeping a bit of distance from this week's results just to kind of like force myself to sit down and, I don't know, do administrative stuff, life stuff, go to the grocery store, get reacquainted with my dog, um, reorganize my life uh submit expenses all that good stuff mm-hmm. um and then yeah we'll jump back into things starting uh starting in next week i suppose or the week after i guess with the uh, with the uh, fed cup so i think it's interesting having a little bit of distance and time between ourselves and these australian open finals because they were such an event and such a high for people that i'm wondering if things are look more sort of sober in the light of day the morning after or several mornings after or whatever, because there was certainly a lot of people happily drunk on these finals and, you know, hopefully responsibly drunk. I don't think anything too crazy was happening. Maybe it was. I think, you know, people who were saying that this match determined the greatest player of all time is probably going a little, little high uh, compared to what I would do with it. But overall, looking back, Courtney, on Australia, what are your impressions on the tournament as a whole? And I guess how it ended in particular, now that you have some time to come to grips with it and let it sink in. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like the um, things are definitely clear a few days later. In so far as for me, I look back on the Australian Open as a true event, like you said, especially the the championship weekend with yeah. uh, Serena and Venus playing one final and then Roger and Rafa in the other. I don't think I'm not sure that we're ever going to get something similar to that um, in terms of just the um, the overwhelmingly like positive emotions going into the final like that these were the two you know finals that is at least from an american perspective in particular with with serena and venus um that we couldn't have asked for you know uh couldn't have asked more from um they were nostalgic while at the same time being a kind of a referendum on on the status of all four careers um over the weekend um and in terms of the current snapshot of all four careers, not the whole goat thing, which is so freaking weird. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so in that way, kind of looking back, it's just it was just a lovely event. It was a lovely tournament, like it that ended on positive notes. Where you know, I guess of the four, you felt the most for Rafa in in terms of his inability to close that final set. But outside of that, um, you know, just just uh, I don't know, it was feel good. It was a feel good tournament after a string of what felt like not so feel good tournaments, not because of the results, but because of a lot of times distractions and things like that and, and dark clouds over top and things. But, but this just felt like a purely lovely two weeks in Melbourne. 
I remember we were walking out of the theater after our day off. We saw La La Land. And I remember thinking at some point that the Federer Nadal final slash build up to it slash excitement for it felt like La La Land-ish. It was just like <laughs> dream world where everything is magical and perfect and choreographed and great and Hollywood ending and all that stuff. And yeah, it was like that after having a year in 2015, 2016, that a lot of times probably felt more like room or something you know oh, whatever Jesus. <laughs> whatever <laughs> my whatever. word that got dark real fast well i was trying to think of it appropriate, maybe not room but you know something <laughs> on those lines i don't know uh but you know what i mean it's just like it was this sort of hyped up thing and it was this clear moment of just like you know happiness in the sport and whether it's what it says about the rest of the sport that this was so um I remember said, Courtney, I, th- I don't know if we said it on the last show, but you remember thinking that all the excitement for Federer and Adal was kind of like a, uh, was all throwing shade or a complete diss to Murray and Djokovic. Yeah. Which, fair. But maybe, maybe, are they, are, does it show that those guys in slash 2016 and slash whatever else you want to call it is missing something or is that unfair? Of course they're missing something. They're missing something simply because they don't, you know, I talk about this a lot. They were not the first movers. They were not the second movers. When you talk about the marketplace for tennis stars, and it's it's a it's a pie. You know that there there isn't an unlimited amount of um, capital that that fans and pundits can can throw tennis's way. It it is a niche sport. It remains a niche sport. It hopefully, will break out of that. But until it does, it is driven by a handful of stars, and those stars are who they are and they drive the tennis quote-unquote marketplace because in a lot of ways not only are they obviously great champions but they were also the first movers and you know that's when you look at a Federer and an Adal and two players who you know hit the market before Djokovic and Murray and split the market effectively you know 50-50 60-40 whatever the breakdown is in a similar way when you talk about Serena and Venus Again, you're talking about a handful of stars on the WTA tour over the course of the last decade, decade and a half, who are still active, who drive the sport, who drive the marketing of the sport, who are, you know, names that 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 transcend um, just the nicheness of tennis. And Serena and Venus are two of those names. And, you know, because of that, regardless of the tennis that you get in a final or in whenever they, they play head to head, and this is an argument I make with respect to Serena and Maria all the time, regardless of the, of the actual product on court, when these players play, it is an event when they do. And that is a, 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 a tribute to their status as tennis's preeminent stars. And so it is shade, obviously, to the Murrays and and the Djokovic's in particular, or like for the women's side, a Kerber who couldn't do anything wrong in 2016. And yet we're like, oh my gosh, thank God. You know, uh, it's kind of shade towards her, uh, who at the time was the number one when all of this shade was being thrown over championship weekend. Um, you know, that's disappointing. Um, but it's not, it's not so much shade as it is, celebrating the champions that we have and i know that that's like two sides of a coin because you know to to give a compliment one way is the way that the world works nowadays is inherently giving a silent diss the other way but i don't think that that's what the weekend should necessarily be remembered for or the australian open in general i think that those stars on that championship weekend on saturday and sunday they absolutely deserved all of the hype and nostalgia and love and celebration that they got yeah, I think that's right. Let's start with the women 
first where we get to the men in terms of the finals. We had, we did a show before both finals, and you mentioned Kerber. Now Kerber kind of did feel like the big loser of the weekend more than more than Murray or Djokovic, I think, even just because Serena gets back to number one. And Kerber had a rough start to the year. I mean, there's no getting around it. I mean, with how she lost, uh, you know, didn't make, I think she lost second match in Brisbane, first match in Sydney, and then lost badly to Coco Vandeweghe in the fourth round of the Australian Open after a couple shaky early matches, too. Um, but I, I think that there are people are rushing probably to sort of dismiss or diminish her time at number one. And sure, it wasn't with the highest ranking point total ever, but she still was a two-time slam champ at number one who made a final of a third slam and made the final of the World Tour finals. Uh, sorry, the WTA finals in Singapore as well. I mean, Kerber's legacy in this, even if this is the last she sees of number one, and we don't know that it is because she has every chance to get it back uh, in the first couple, in the next few weeks here, playing both Doha, Dubai, and India Wells. And a good run at any one of those tournaments could be enough to get it. Um, I, I think that Kerber is sort of time at number one should be remembered entirely positively in sort of the same way that I wish people would remember uh, Dinara, Safina, just in that it was this sort of moment of remarkable overachievement of expectations. I mean, nobody in 2015 even, or even probably even honestly, even after she won the Australian Open, was talking about Kerber as a potential future number one. And she really deserves, I think, a lot of credit for building up to that on herself. Um, where she goes from here, I don't know, but as much, I think that some, and maybe I'm guilty of myself a little bit, but a bit of the uh, riding the ship narrative that comes with Serena getting back to number one, I think might shortchange Kerber a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that Serena said it best. Um, you weren't in the, uh, we had like a small, you guys had your own separate round table with Serena. I was in a different one um, for the Web and Wire writers. And, um, and she was asked, Serena, you know, did it piss you off that you were at number two? And I think that Serena, you know, answered that question perfectly. And I think that um, in what she said, she put into context both of what both she accomplished, obviously, over the weekend, and and uh, but also what Kerber accomplished. And what she said was like, look, I didn't deserve to be number one. And the way that she said it, she wasn't, she was adamant about it. She's like, it didn't piss me off. I didn't deserve to be number one. Like, you know, Angie, Angie took it. I mean, two-time slam champion, as you said, you know, reeling off her accomplishments last season, regardless of whether or not a Serena is there or not, that is an incredible season. And then to dismiss somebody's season simply because they don't live up to your expectation that's the following couple of weeks of the second season is completely ludicrous to me. Um, no one, as you said, would have ever thought that Angie could do what she did last year. And she did. And so, yeah, it's going to take her some time to deal with that um, in terms of the pressure and the expectation. And, you know, no one will deny the fact that January was a disappointment for her. But it does turn the page on January for her. And it is now February. And, and at this point, as you said, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for her. I still think that one of the big things in terms of um, the Australian Open that you know, this whole concept of seeing it in the clear light of day, having a few days away from it, is that I think that those losses by the Kerbers, by the Redvanskas, by Halep, you know, the, the by the Wozniakis, you know, the grinders that we expect to be able to grind out matches, particularly on what has traditionally not been a particularly fast court in Melbourne this year, they got absolutely demolished off the court. I mean, these are upsets that never got any traction because they were upsets that happened a lot of times in less than an hour um, by big hitters who yeah. absolutely wiped the floor that with counterpunchers. That Rogers match went fast. It was a shocker. And it yeah. was the first match on, on Laver. Um, 
And it was one that many of us called. And so I think that the whole issue of the speed of the court, I think, does kind of temper some of my uh, disappointment, I suppose, that I felt mid-tournament with respect to some of the the players that, you know, we were expecting to have a good Australian Open and didn't do so. Um, I think that tempers it. Now, that being said, you know, three of those players that I named probably were not shockers to go out. You mentioned when Wozniacki, who was absolutely not a shock losing to Kanta. No, not a shock, but the way she lost. I mean, Kanta just battered her off the court. I thought yeah. that match was going to be far closer. Um, and uh, and Halep obviously called that one. And um, and even Redvanska called that one, even though with Redvanska, she was playing well. You know, like there weren't form question marks around Aga going into that match against Lucic Broni in the second round. That was just a matchup issue. And again, speed of court. You look at the players that made the semifinals. Um, particularly on the women's side. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's speed of court across the board. Um, those are Wimbledon ter- players who made this. Those are Wimbledon players, yeah. exactly, you yeah. know, and, and that's not what we expect from Melbourne. So I think that looking back on some of the results, even the losses of a Djokovic early, uh, a Murray early to a serve and volleying Misha Zverev, those are not results that are supposed to happen in Melbourne. Those are results that are supposed to happen at Wimbledon. And so I think that you do have to really, you know, tip your cap or curse, depending on where you are uh, in your fandom, the, the changes that Tennis Australia made to the courts. I thought it was great. I mean, I, I, I liked it. I personally but... love fast court tennis compared to slow court tennis. I like seeing people able to hit winners. I like seeing good shots rewarded. So just for I me, like it. Yeah. I like it when it is one of four surfaces. I do not like it when across the board things are fast. Like, I don't want to watch a full season of fast court tennis. Like, that would drive me insane. That would, that's when, you know, the time that I checked out of the sport was when it was all serve and volleying no, and Pete true. Sampras and all that. Like, it's not interesting to me. I like rallies. But if for two weeks, you know, we get this, I think this was a happy that's fine medium. by me. I think it was a happy medium. I mean, we didn't see, you know, Karlovich yeah, not, or, or right. Ronic doing particularly well or Isner or... You know, uh, Naomi Brody, whoever else you might want to throw. Oh, no, Brody actually played well in her one match against Gavrilova. But, um, you know, it wasn't like it was all that. It was just those players happened to do well. And I thought it was interesting that Federer, who's obviously another Wimbledon player um, in that category, mentioned in talking about the speed of the core, he mentioned that Venus was in the final, too. I think whenever his press conference was where he brought her up yep. or had done well. Um, and it's, it's very rare, as we know, for ATP players to sort of notice corollaries on the women's side but he did see that and he was somebody who you know knew what that meant and took advantage of his opportunity and Nadal is not a fast court player at all so I think for him um he shows a little bit of balance and uh Vavrinka's not a particularly fast court player either there and then he made semis so it wasn't as strong on the men's but I get I get what you're saying for sure yeah I mean and also I mean to get very granular about it is even though we talk about Venus being a Wimbledon player and she made the final and all these sorts of things she made the final with counter punching. She was not blasting in her semi, opponents absolutely. off in yeah. the semi. Absolutely, but even up up until then, if you, if you watched most of her run um, and all of the numbers back it up as well, she was winning off of off of like the baseline without much of a serve. She wasn't getting you know it wasn't Wimbledon Venus. She wasn't like attacking the net and cutting off points. I mean, she was counter punching and she was grinding off the baseline, um, which was weird. Uh, but it yeah. was so cool to see that, like, see her effectively admit as well, like, you do what you got to do to win. And, like, her initial recognition in that semifinal against Coco, that Coco was playing in a way that was not going to allow her to hit winners, that she was going to have to dig in and win with defense. I think that's just such – I mean, how many times, honestly, 
this isn't even rhetorical, have we seen, Ben, in deep in tournaments or even just regular matches where, like, a young player simply will not adjust their game plan according to what their opponent is doing mm-hmm. and they just keep you know bashing their head against the wall whichever way and so to see venus kind of be like the ultimate veteran and say the ultimate veteran thing like yep yeah the thing that i'm known for and i trust me i like controlling points but that wasn't going to work today so i had to go to plan b and i and i did it that way i was like oh i hope people are listening and i think that i think that we've said, maybe said on the semi-final show or with the pre-final show too that's not even typical venus i mean venus is no. not known as being a very flexible player tactics wise so for her to do that was pretty pretty great uh federer i think gets more let's switch to the men just or actually let's finish with the women for serena now that she's number one do we expect her to just be someone asked her, is this the start of a Serena slam? And she was like, well, <laughs> a Serena slam can start anywhere but Australia. Her response to that was so great. So um, good. But, you know, you can't start a Serena slam at Australia. And there's like calendar slam maybe. And, you know, I think, again, I will take the under on calendar slam for Serena this year. Um, but does this, do you think that with how well she played in uh, Melbourne, expectations are higher for her this year? And I absolutely do. Not just that she won the title. She, this was not an ugly win. She's had some ugly slam wins in recent years, most notably that French Open right. in 2015. But this was a pretty one. She didn't drop a set. She was in control of every match against some really tough opponents. Um, I think that my my hopes for her are absolutely higher. And I think that if she plays, you know, wins one of, let's say, Indian Wells in Miami, I think her odds of, of hanging on to number one for a while, or at least being in the mix for number one, depending on how Kerber turns around or not, are definitely higher than I would have put them earlier in this year when I would have thought she was be out of the conversation for number one, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I think that the expectations absolutely do change with the way that she played in Melbourne. Um, you know, she kind of, you know, had a bit of that dig, what was it, semifinals after her semifinals saying, like, you know, people basically wrote her off. And But I like being the underdog. And it's like, Serena, nobody wrote you off. It's just that, like, we didn't have any data points other than the fact that you're awesome. Also, like, you, know, also you like, lost to Brangle. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. She lost to Madison Brangle. I was there. I saw that with my own eyes. Yeah, I mean, it was like, windy, but it was still Brangle. It it was, and she was coming off of what having not won a tournament since Wimbledon. Yep. Right. So losing Only to won two titles at the last Olympics. Year. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of data points that were going the other way, and the only reason I remember somebody um, saying this to me when we were kind of handicapping things before the tournament of like, yeah, it's sixty forty. She won't win. Uh, the Australian Open, and the only reason we give her 40% chance is because she's Serena. And that's even higher than I would have gone. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think that was the conventional wisdom, not because of anything untoward, but because all the data showed everything going the other way. The only reason that you back her chances with zero data points going into Melbourne is if you just think Serena is awesome. And at that point, that's just fandom. That's not, not, you know. We talked about a pre-show. Oddsmakers had her as the favorite, but very slightly, and at like four to one. Which had to yeah. be the like longest in odds a while. for yeah. a favorite on WTA side in a long time, especially in a Serena, you know, attended slam. And so maybe yeah. she proved that wrong. But she, you're right. She there was no reason for to be overly uh, sanguine. On yeah, and and I think that going out of it, one of the bit my big takeaways from Melbourne, especially with respect to Serena, is that Ben and I have talked about this for you know since the the calendar slam was on the table uh, two years ago that the tension surrounding Serena at the big tournaments has been palpable. 
since then that 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 you can see when she's nervous that you can see when she's stressed that she would seem to go overboard to try and mitigate that by saying all the right things but she never said it in a way that made you believe it yeah oh i'm playing with house money i don't really care like i don't have anything to prove to anyone you know like i don't feel pressure all of that all the right things to say Never for a split second did I believe her, no. um, because her not because I do, I think Serena's a liar, <laughs> but because on court you saw it, you there's, you there's saw a, how nervous she was. There might be a reason her acting career never took off. No, I mean it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's true though. I mean she does say these things, and you and you say honestly, I'm just here, you know, just I'm relaxed. There's no pressure on me at all. But then you ask some other question like, so Serena, what would be a satisfying result for you in Melbourne or something along those <laughs> lines? And she makes it clear that anything but a final, and she would be absolutely, you know, punching people in the throat. Right. It was very difficult to kind of reconcile those two. But in Melbourne, that was the first tournament that I've seen her compete at in the last two, three years where I genuinely bought it. I think that and I find I kind of like watched her and on court in the press room, just around talking to her off record, things like that. I'm just like, I think she's kind of actually bought it. Like it's finally the whole idea of I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I think hitting um, 22 I'm was playing, big for that, maybe. Yeah, I think 22 was big in that. But, like, she just – there was a different – this was a different Serena. And, and her outlook seemed different. And it seemed in a, in a good way, in a very positive way. I think that if she can carry that forward and not get swept up into 24 and, you know, all these different things left and right, that, that she'll be fine. Um, And I think that, that that mentality is going to take her pretty darn far this year. I mean – yeah, I wouldn't say calendar slam, but but three out of four, I I, I wouldn't. Uh, That's I a wouldn't, high bar. Uh, yeah. It's a high bar, but I wouldn't tell anybody like, oh, you're crazy. Whereas, you know, four weeks ago, I would have said you're crazy. I'll go two. I'll go two out of four, just because I think that before the slam, honestly, I was setting the bar at you know one or zero, and so um, I'm I, I don't I think it's ridiculous to reverse course too much. She still is 35 and not getting any younger. She's had shoulder issues, which interestingly at the at, I think in my round table, maybe with Serena, she was saying after that she screwed up her shoulder playing on the heavy, wet clay of Roland Garros. It's what gave her her shoulder issues later hmm. and all the rain and stuff, uh, which I'm sure Radvanska would nod vigorously at. But so, then she won Wimbledon serving lights out. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying, again, who knows what to believe with her all the time, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's her take. And yeah, so I think that it'll be interesting to watch. And She's going to schedule so scant. I mean, she's going to play any Wells in Miami, I think, currently. And then Madrid and Rome, but she hasn't played both of those in a while fully. So we'll see. And then French, so no grass court warm-ups. And then Wimbledon, then, you know, probably Canada or Cincinnati in the U.S. Open. So, I mean, it's going to be... Yeah, she said that she she said that if she could play the schedule that she was supposed to play last year, meaning that continue to play after the U.S. Open and, and the finals, and that, think, that would be an ideal schedule to her. Like, and I think that while maintaining Madrid. What she I think does. Madrid was an unplayable yeah. pullout, maybe. So, yeah. Yeah, but you're not going to see her take wild cards into... Uh, or not, you know, take checks into a Bashad again or anything like that. She's still right. in the past. The other 35-year-old champion was Roger Federer. It was a much bigger surprise than Serena... Although, I mean, again, it's mixed because we talked before, and I think you you tweeted aptly, Courtney, that, you know, Federer had made, what, like, semis or better? Like, something like his three or four last slams? Yeah, three out of four, I think. Yeah, so um, coming into this, I mean, he made a U.S. Open final in 2015. He made semis of the two slams he played in 2016, which were Australia and Wimbledon. So from that point of view, like, a final isn't, a title shouldn't feel like as big a jump. But I guess it, it did, just that, I mean, he did have a number 17 next to his name. He hadn't played in a while, um, 
things opened up for him for sure. He was, again, to mention the odds, he was odds maker's favorite to win the tournament as soon as Murray went out. So once both Murray and Djokovic were out, Federer was sort of wow, picked. Wow, okay. And um, that proved correct. But still, I think he he defied my expectations. I certainly didn't think once things got into, like, once the Nadal match got tough for him, I was surprised to see him win that battle in five. You know, that doesn't, <laughs> historically, it doesn't go Roger's way in these situations against Rafa when Rafa's, Rafa was not peak Rafa by any stretch um, in that match. But once it got into a fifth set, I thought Rafa had it completely. So I was surprised by that. Yeah, I think that the result in and of itself isn't the shocker. It's it's the way that it happened. Um, and that fifth set, I still maintain that for four sets, this was not a good match. Um, they never played well at the same time. I agree. I agree. Up until the up until the fifth, um, it was scratchy. It, there were times where Roger was just. Sh- it, it just. It was as one who's kind of a nonpartisan when it comes comes between those two. Because I was never one that was part of like the. Yeah, I, I'm not a Roger person. I'm not really a Rafa person, but like, um, I just for four, I mean, I was just happy that it only took two and a half hours to get to the fifth set. <laughs> like, yeah. it was that was really good though because it was a, it was a Federer it was a Nadal match played on a Federer pace, which I yeah. appreciated. Yeah, Nadal no, matches so, go slow. Exactly. So no, I mean, it, it went quickly and it went fine, but that fifth set was phenomenal. Um, and I it never would have occurred to me that that would be how that match ended. Is is Roger, you know, whatever, like basically reeling off what was it, five straight games? Mm-hmm. From three one down in the fifth, yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to win. Um, that's pretty remarkable. And so, yeah, it's it doesn't shock me that Roger Federer won the Australian Open. It surprises me that Roger Federer came back from the brink in a fifth set to beat Rafa Nadal to win the Australian Open, I guess is is kind of my take on it. And I'll, um, add, and I'll add to that in his third five set fifth set match five set match yeah as a top 10 guy at that tournament right and 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 i've and i've never been um shy about expressing my opinion with respect to roger that it's just it's not that the tennis isn't there it's whether you can replicate it over seven matches in two weeks i think that that's been something that he has struggled with over you know the last couple years in so far as he's been making those semifinals and he's been making those finals at the slams but somehow things just kind of go pear-shaped in that match where where his form just escapes him and and that happened a little even bit just, in yeah, even just on break points and things the exactly past, yeah. and, and even that happened in 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 the final where he had like that weird 20 minutes where he couldn't miss like sometime in the third yeah third or fourth set or whichever it he was the third six one and it was fast. Yeah, yeah exactly after after you know saving all those points in the first game but like yeah and then all of a sudden things went like completely poo in in the fourth <laughs> set where you're like good lord do you even tennis what's wrong with you like you know like are you drunk right now and he what was nice though and again this goes back towards what serena was saying in terms of um or what i was saying about serena like like that this was the first tournament where i feel like she really like sunk into and lived the truth of this whole like i don't have to prove anything to anybody and she was relaxed roger was it felt like from the get-go, very, very humble about his chances at the Open. Like, he never really was, like, kind of the typical Roger. There wasn't the typical Roger arrogance about backing himself and, like, you know, trying to tell the media off, like, sort of thing. Like, he kind of basically said, like, yeah, this was a great, like, after Burdick, you know, this was great. I don't know if I can do it again. I don't know if it's this level is going to be there you know, in two days. And he looked genuinely surprised when he beat Nishikori. Like, his exactly. on-court reaction, he looked genuinely surprised by that. And let's and let's be clear. Kay should have beat him. 
But yeah. like, but you know what I mean? Like, I th- I feel like, again, that humility, almost that acceptance of one's mortality, not to make it all dramatic, like finally sunk in with these two great champions and they got past it. And in a lot of ways, they kind of did actually get past the internal, external pressures of, of, of expectation and, and what um, people want from them, I suppose. And they finally swung freely for seven matches and just accepted what would happen. Um, and, and yeah, like Roger said, like he thought that his chances slipped away, um, you know, in that, that fit, that, uh, that fifth set when he gave up that break and, um, and he, and he, and he came back and, and I, and I do, I really feel bad for Rafa. Like, I think I said, you know, in our final preview, uh, uh, podcast that like, I felt like of the four stories, like, well, that just that Rafa not needed it more. I hate saying that, but like he wasn't the one that has been knocking on the door of breaking through and winning one of these things. Compared the to Roger, Roger, yeah. Compared if you're, to if Roger, you're putting yeah. Venus in that category. Too, no, no, no. That's why that. I was like, yeah. let's let's just stick it between Rafa and Roger. Roger right. had been knocking on the door. Rafa had not been. So for him to to win it would have been pretty darn impressive, and and I think um, arguably more of an impressive feat than than would've Roger would have been the more unlikely story. I think for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Although sure. Ra- Rafa, Rafa, I think was also further off his best in these. I mean, he was winning matches, yeah, but, but he played, but he ran up against Ronich, who kind of choked in that second set and really played a dumb match. And he played Malfis, who's you know <laughs> going to be Malfis and do Malfisy things. And then he went a very tight match, which was I don't remember the details of it as well. I wrote about it, but I'm trying. It's all kind of blur now against Dimitrov, which was nearly five hours. Um, and so going five hours against Dimitrov doesn't normally indicate that you're ready to win a slam. With all the respect to Dimitrov, um, well, new new Dimitrov, new Dimitrov I mean, was better. No, but but still, let's, but still, Dimitrov. Let's, let's yeah. not let's not be dick about Grigor. Grigor had a Grigor great had a tournament, gr- a great I mean, January. He, he did though, but like but that was a brand new Grigor that we saw, and I give him credit for that. That's fair, but Rafa's still seven and one against him and hasn't had much trouble ever before, and so right against old Dimitrov, and that was old Rafa. Okay. So like the combination well, of like I'm... new Dimitrov. No, no, I understand. Yeah. I'm just saying. And the combination of new Dimitrov and subpar Rafa provides you a five hour, you know, five set that, match. That was my that, but... was, that was my whole point was that this was subpar Rafa. No, I know. I'm just okay. saying that like don't shade Grigor is all okay. I'm saying. Okay. Um, yeah. But so Rafa, I thought was further off his best maybe than Federer was through his whole tournament. And that's maybe underestimating what Federer, how good Federer's best was at peak Federer. But at least recent best, let's say. Um, and so, yeah, so I thought that it was a reasonable result. Unlike Serena, let's say, I would be stunned if Rafa, if, sorry, if Roger, I think I'd be stunned if Roger wins another slam. I think, I think this felt like kind of a tremendous swan song or a last, you know, last, uh, last heroic moment for him. He could win Wimbledon or the US Open, I guess, this year if things break his way again. And, I think everything this year in men's tennis depends on Novak Djokovic. It's all about what he can do or can't do. Um, Did you see that ATP ad, by the way, that like no. was an advertisement for, I feel like the world tour finals, like pre-sale tickets. And it had everybody on, it had Novak, or sorry, it had Rafa, Roger and Andy, and it didn't have Novak on the picture. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that is not okay. <laughs> Have they done market research? That he like actively <laughs> like repels people what is that about I don't, that's it was really rude when i saw it i was like man that's that's pretty cold Lefty. like regardless of the, your market research like <laughs> like you put 
people, you know, like I know this, like from the WTA side, regardless of market research, you put certain people on the billboard because they have earned their right to be on the billboard. Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I guess maybe, well, I'm going to say he's probably doing really badly in the race right now, that which is a second round, uh, or he'd won yeah. Noha, so never mind. But, you know. He'd second, be ahead of Murray. He'd be ahead of Murray. Well, Murray made uh, fourth close. round. Close. Yeah. Yeah, close. Anyhow, um, not a great start for Novak. Uh, we got, speaking of sort of quantifying things and billboardifying things, we got a question before the tournament that we're going to try to get to now and recontextualize in these, in this situation from uh listener, uh, James Clifford, who we've met Courtney. He's like, remember he's, he made a, a sign for NCR yes. in the stadium and he's a big Red Vonska super fan, which just means he's our kind of people. Exactly. Um, so he says, hi, Ben and Courtney. Um, I was looking at Serena's draw before for the Australian Open and thinking about the bench at Safarova double for the third round. It got me thinking about how parity in the WTA has meant there are seemingly more former top 10 players than ever floating around the top 100. Turns out there are 26 out of the top 100. So more than a quarter of the top 10 are former top 10. Sorry. So more than a quarter of the top 100 are former top 10 players. Um, and then he adds that even more notably, 34 out of the top 100 have reached a Grand Slam single semifinal at least once. Um, he says, do you think this, he asks, do you think this makes the tour easier to market considering a quarter of players or more have had a moment in the sun and therefore there's more interest in early matchups or does it dilute the meaning of the top 10 and other achievements? Uh, so I did count them. It's 34. So I do have that number. Uh, and this counts, this is before Australian open numbers. So if you're doing it yourself, and say Sabine Lisicki was top 100 and is no longer top 100. It would have counted there. So there are 34 for the women. But for the men, Courtney, there are only uh, 18 men in this category. So it's very different. Yes. And some of the men, <laughs> I mentioned the last one too, as I was doing just checking myself before the show. The last one is Mikhail Eugenie, who I don't think has the marquee value of anything. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a big group of names, and there's names you go through in the rankings that qualify for this, uh, way down. I mean, so there basically are 18 men in the top 100 who've made a semifinal, and there's 18 women in the top 21. It's as far as you have to go to match the 18. That's amazing. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then the most recent of them is Coco Vandeweghe, who just joined that group in Australia. And there's been an amazing streak of I think first time Slam semifinalists, at least one. I think just one, maybe one first time slam semifinalist at each slam since i think wimbledon in 2013 there's been one i'm trying one. to think if i can if i can identify off the top of my head i don't have the rankings in front of me the three women in the top 21 who haven't made the semifinals i told you two of them earlier i don't know if you yeah strits of us one strits of us one um let me tell you i know svitolina is one. Oh, and oh and carla Oh, and Carla. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so those are, the, those are the three. Yeah, but so, I mean, so there's a lot of names. And again, not all of them are marquee players, but Burton, Lucic, Makarova, Bouchard, Irani, Yankovic, Sloan Stevens, Pekovic, Safarova, Wickmeyer, Parankova, <laughs> Flipkin, Schiavone, uh, Peng Shui. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a lot. And maybe it's more sometimes quantity over quality or whatever you want to call it um because a lot of the because the men obviously there are fewer names in there that just sort of are like oh yeah i kind of remember that outside of Eugenie and maybe verdasco i mean it's pretty much all guys who more or less qualify i think as being a-list players on the atp um you know your del potro ferrer gasquet i'll just name all of them <laughs> it won't take that long <laughs> del potro ferrer gasquet songa dimitrov burdich 
Federer, Malfi, Team, Chelich, Nadal, Nishikori, Ronic, Wawrinka, Djokovic, Murray. So, Fair enough. I yeah, mean, that are... is that is that is the cream of the crop that we consider. Yeah. So I guess what what is sort of what do you think is preferable, having these achievements spread around or having them all really concentrated? And um, does it mean that it? Second part of the question is: it, Does it dilute the achievements when it's this spread around for the women? Hmm. I think it's a totally like this is a great like bar bar chatter debate topic amongst like tennis journalists mm-hmm. um because i think that there's an i mean i i can see an argument for both sides i don't think that there's necessarily a right one i mean to me and, it, and it's really just going to come down to what you know this is always a fundamental um the parody question yeah dis- yeah it's the parody question of like do you like it or do you not it, it, it's so simple, but it's basically that. And I think that this goes back to kind of the discussion that we were having earlier about, you know, those billboard players, those top, you know, the, the market drivers, as they were, of tennis players, which is a separate question from this question, uh, because it's a very, it's a much smaller, we're talking about probably a group of five players, mm-hmm. maybe six, right? Uh, both um, con- combined between the men and the women that drive the market. The question is, like, do we want for these when we talk about the big tournaments, the slams, the masters, the premier mandatories, like, do we just want like a, are these just supposed to be coronation ceremonies of our great champions? Or are they supposed to be legit competitions? Um, and I think that when you have a situation where probably with the ATP, they're in a probably better position because, you know, they are, they, they are, you know, they make a lot of money. Um, their revenue streams are, are probably higher. Um, they are probably a bigger um, across the board sport. Like they are in less of a niche than probably arguably the WTA is, sure. which is in more of a niche. I don't think I'm breaking any news here. It's just market I mean, it just dynamics. It holds across almost everything from men's versus women's sports. It's right, exactly. It, the yeah. PGA is going to be bigger than the LPGA. The NBA is going to be bigger than WNBA, et cetera. Um, that they can then, because of that, are, ironically, have more parity. Because I think that if you are out, if you are working outside of your niche and you are just considered like a popular sport, parody is a good thing. I mean, we see that in American sports all the time with respect to, you know, um, baseball. Uh, used to be basketball, but I guess less so. But NFL um, even. I mean, like you can put, NFL, you can throw any yeah. two teams into the Super Bowl and people will watch. I mean, like the right. Atlanta Falcons. With all due respect to Ricky Diamond, if he's listening, like nobody cares about them, and they're going to be in the Super Bowl, right. and that won't really affect ratings. Right, exactly. And so that's what I mean when somebody, some, you know, parody actually um, is a good thing. Because then from there, because everybody loves your sport anyway, because you're op- operating outside of the niche, you can sell more personalities and you can sell more teams and you want more people. You don't want everybody to be a Patriots fan. You want you want fans of all the teams and you want each team to grow its base. And same with tennis. So I feel like ironically, the ATP is in a position where that would be a really good thing is if you had more parity and you had but as we've discussed um, in the past, chances are maybe we're (laughs) maybe we're in a bubble here. But in my experience, people know more players in the WTA top 50 than they know of the ATP top 50. Part of that is necessity. Hmm. Oh, no, you have necessity to... is absolutely true. There's so many more relevant players in WTA. Right, yeah. right. That's what I mean. Like you, you kind of in order to follow the WTA, you have to know more than just like six players, 
right? Yeah. Because chances are, if there's a semifinal happening, there's going to be somebody in there uh, as this, you know, this series of stats. Or even just dangerous second rounds, you know, things like that. Right. In order to actually handicap the tournament uh, intelligently, you have to know more players um, on the WTA tour to follow the WTA tour as opposed to the ATP tour. And so there is inherently more parity within the WTA. And I personally love that. But I also recognize that I might be in the vast minority here and that people want consistent winners, consistent champions um, that are constantly winning everything. That just doesn't sound good to me. But Maybe that's the case. And because we are operating within a niche, maybe the parody does hurt us. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's you, my argument. Yeah. That's my initial that's my initial argument. Go. I think that you touched on something really interesting, which I think is that these results, I think both tours would benefit from them being flipped. I think that the women, yeah. because they are slightly, you know, more niche, probably have to work harder, would do better from having more dominance. And the men would do better from having more parody. And just sort of spreading out the sport and growing tournaments at like the 250 and 500 level, which haven't always exploded and have had some very uneven success rates, especially 250s. Um, right. And the reason why is because of the lack of not actual depth. Like we can argue all we want about whether or not there is actual depth or just perceived depth or whatever right. on the ATP. Like is number... But the bottom line is you don't have the stars at 40 to 50 to 60 in the rankings to hold up. A 250 tournament yeah no exactly and so right and you look at the ultimate example of you know parody I'll, I'll go to point to like uh or sorry dominance helping a niche sport like ronda rousey again who's yep. this who's this dominant was previously undefeated and seen this like unstoppable thing who infamously won a best female athlete ever poll before over serena at one point <laughs> uh before getting her handed so her stupid. first loss um and so but no one would have heard of that sport would have known about women's MMA without her. And if she disappears, that sport's probably going to disappear, honestly, um, yeah. or at least subside drastically from public yeah. consciousness. And so you and need you need those sort of stories to have people latch on. I and mean, same thing, I mean, the only top wheelchair player most people can probably name, maybe a little bit less now that it's gotten some better attention the last couple of years, was Esther Vergeer, because she was this dominant person in wheelchair tennis and... That's what, that's, what, that's what makes people notice. Niche yeah. sports. And so, Tiger Woods. Look at what Tiger Woods did for golf. Yeah. Like, you know, because then it was like, I'm going to watch Tiger Woods. And it didn't matter who was in Even the rest like of the Even like Michael Jordan in basketball, like, brought that to a right. new level of popularity after. And then once you get, yeah, and then once you get to a certain level, then obviously the parody is helpful because that helps to then legitimately grow your base of fans. But, you know, even if you look at, like, women's soccer, if, if not for the U.S. women's national team, nobody gives a shit about women's soccer yeah. worldwide, honestly. You know, they are the revenue driver and they're the names and they're the, the faces that go on, on, on posters. And the same, and they're the ones that sell, sell tickets. And within tennis, again, we're talking relatively speaking between ATP and WTA, but on the whole, relatively speaking, tennis compared to other sports, these small pockets of stars are the ones that drive yeah. everything. And, and so when they are not winning, when they are not, you know, um, as relevant as you want them to be or need them to be, the sport takes a hit. And that's where, you know, the parody then uh, becomes, I suppose, problematic. Sure. But again, but I don't think that these tor the tournaments should be coronation ceremonies for our game's biggest stars either. Like, that seems to be a bit of a joke. And, no, completely. And I remember in the draw preview show, the one thing I said that I wanted from the Australian Open on the men's side was not a Murray Djokovic final. 
because I've seen that a million times before, and the road getting there would feel like a waste of time. And I didn't get that, and was and that was part of the. And I think again, going back to shading those two, like just having something that doesn't feel inevitable is better. The, as a competition, the women's are much more fun because it's a free for all. Anybody, not anybody can lose anybody, but it feels like it. I mean, some of these names that are in here in this list of semifinalists are just you know, it's hard to imagine a player like a. I don't know who the ATP equivalent of like Bachinsky would be, you know, but she's right. had moments where she was really relevant, you know, was up a set and a break on Serena and a slam semi. Um, and players, you know, you just have to know these names and it makes it much more fun and makes diving into any random match. Uh, not just necessarily more fun because there are plenty of close matches in ATP tournaments and at men's slams, but it makes it more relevant. That's the thing. I mean, that I think you talked about with, and that's a big part of what makes a, a match feel important and exciting, is when you feel like there are high stakes. I think you mentioned this well, yeah. in, the, in the Australian Open with like the Yankovic Kuznetsova match that was like close, but it wasn't like it, you know, it was really determining yeah. a title contender or anything close to it, so it didn't have the same oomph to it compared to watching like, you know, Djokovic Istman or something, which felt like all the world's weight was, you know, in the balance in that match. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the WTA is like day trading, whereas the ATP is like mutual funds. Okay. You know what I mean? Like you you know your horses and you basically, you know, which are, you know, your nine your nine funds and you're basically talking about marginal ups and downs over the course of time. And but nine at the end of the day we know. High, yeah. yeah, but at the end of the day we know who our champions are. We know that they are going to be the ones that are standing at the end of the day um, and that over the course of time, yes, they will take losses like losing to an Istvan or a Zverev, but over the course of time, they will come out on top more than not. And you, you know, you bank on that. The WTA is more day trading. It's about looking at trends. I mean, I know this as a WTA writer. It's what makes my job really, really fun is that I don't have to get stuck in the rut of, well, nothing's really happening because we kind of know who's going to be on top in six months. We don't. We have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in February. It, I don't know what's going to happen this week it, in St. Pete's. It is. It's day trading and it's looking at who's playing well, who's not playing well. I feel like power rankings and like hot or not, you know, analyses are far more relevant and interesting and 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 important in in WTA yeah. than necessarily for ATP. ATP the rankings pretty much reflect what's going on. The WTA that's not always the case. That's what makes it fun and and that's what makes it interesting because it feels like something there's an unpredictable thing happening and depending on what the stakes are, it's really, it's really a big deal. And so, yeah, with the WTA, it does feel like day trading a lot. It feels like, you know, you get in, you log in and you just start, you know, with your live score app, you're basically tracking trends. I mean, my, and, and, <laughs> and, but it, and it can matter because my gosh, we had a Venus Vandeweghe semifinal at a grand slam, which Venus, yeah. which Venus is a known name and a household name, but she still was not someone considered a contender at all at the Australian open pre-tournament. Uh, at number 13 and Vandeweghe was unseated and that all of a sudden it all came down to those two for a spot in the slam final and very well one of them could have won it theoretically especially if Lucic had somehow managed to beat Serena and so uh, it does matter but I, I do think on the dilution part it does I buy the dilution I think that you have to kind of concede that because I'm looking like trying to find parallels across these two lists of semifinalists like the two one-time semifinalists I can see near each other at all not they're not near each other in the rankings right now but are like Bachinsky and Dominic Team have each made one slam semi. And it just feels like Dominic Team is a much, he's given a lot more, uh, you know, relevance or praise or, you know, consideration as a player on his tour than Bachinsky is. 
when maybe some of their com- contributions and wins or whatever aren't as different as they might be. Granted, he's but younger. I think that in, yeah, like he's that. younger. I think that that's a massive, that's a massive, um, you know, thing. And, and also that's when it comes to attention, I feel like so much of that is also, that's just marketing. No, that's which true. Is a separate, the next that's a separate, stuff, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I feel like that's a separate, I mean, you did an article for team for racket. So like, it's not, you know what I mean? It's like, whereas like the Bachinsky story has been told many, many times and um, it's kind of oversaturated up to a point and people kind of yeah whether or not she's reached her peak or whether she can replicate these things again who knows she was a 2014 story i guess is also part of it yeah but the dilution but the dilution is separate too insofar as that like i understand the idea of like the um the milestone of being a top 10 player making a grand slam semifinal um I understand the argument to be made that it is not as impressive as those same milestones on the ATP tour. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're like on the ATP, like Dominic team making a semifinal. Well, no, this is just a complete tautology and you can feel free to cut it. But it's just like, of course it like matters because it doesn't happen all the time. No, it, the scarcity. Is but that doesn't necessarily. Yeah. yeah. But then that, but then that goes towards the bigger argument that we are obviously just discussing which is like whether or not that's a good thing or bad thing but i think also part so of, it's kind yeah. of like when you isolate those things into dilute like is it good or bad it's like yeah it might be bad but then it reflects a good thing broader broadly or it might be good but then it's not actually a good thing once you take a step back and look at things you know yeah. with a different perspective and i think it also so, but it also has i, don't I think know. it also reflects on how people view the gatekeepers for those sort of achievements like i don't i guess yeah Bichinsky, to use her again, beat Kvitova to get to that semifinal, but also beat Van Wyk-Fank in the quarters. Um, and so, uh, you know, she was a bit of an emptier road, whereas most... And team didn't beat any really top guys. The draw broke a little bit for him in that case. I think Rafa pulled out of that French Open uh, section that he was in. But most of the time, you have to get through a big guy to get one of those breakthroughs on the men's side. Whereas the women's, you know, someone like a Halep, you know, Halep loses, you know, has lost quite a few times early at slams recently. And people just kind of go, yeah, you know, that's what happens. And there isn't really a men's corollary to like a top player with Halep type results. So that's true. Yeah. Maybe back in the day with Ferrer. Yeah. Well, and Ferrer didn't take that many bad early losses. Yeah. Though. I was going to say that, yeah, Ferrer was pretty consistent. Hence but there were, but there were certainly, I mean, certainly, I think like, or like think, Stan, but I think Stan, Stan does some, and I think like even back much further, I think like Guga took a bunch of early losses at non clay mm-hmm. slams and things like that. So, I mean, there have been, it's, it's all this era of ATP is, it's not what men have always been and what women have always been. It's just a, sort of a snapshot of these two moments right. lining up against That's each very other. true. And yeah, cause there are a number two guys, you know, like, I don't know, Magnus Norman or other people who weren't, you know, you can pen into the final rounds of slams the way you can with these guys or have right. been able to with these guys. Courtney, you mentioned racket. And so we have a conversation that I will air next week on our next episode with the founders of Racket Magazine, uh, Caitlin Thompson and David Shaftel that I think you will enjoy. And I'm excited for it. I'm sitting at my desk or sitting two copies of the two racket issues. So hopefully people will enjoy that. And Feel free to buy a copy before you hear them so you know what they're talking about. Maybe. That's good technique for marketing, right? Keep up. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, (laughs) 
silence from you. Such a bad sales pitch. No, I just you know make a better one then. Go make a better sales pitch. No conflicts of interest. I can't. I'm 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 staying out of it. You can sell it. I'm not going to sell it. I'm conflicted a little bit. I wrote for them in the last issue, so I mean I'm open about that. I mean I'm an I'm an editor, so (laughs) it's slightly different. Okay, but stand stand by your product then. You know. You shouldn't yeah, feel no. about, you know, something you're proud of, that you're part of. No, 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 of course not. I'm I'm proud of it. Um, I think it's great. I think that it's breathtakingly beautiful, especially this most recent episode, but, or, I'm um, sorry, most recent issue. Yeah, I don't, I don't involve myself in things I don't believe in. So I just let my, my name on the masthead do the talking. It's pretty great. There you go. Uh, thank you guys for believing in this show enough to listen to this whole thing. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can like us on Facebook where we have some Facebook content coming out. We'll do more as February rolls along. Uh, follow us on Twitter also. Uh, our Facebook is facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Our Twitter is NCR underscore tennis at NCR underscore tennis. Uh, send us questions for upcoming shows to our email, no challenges remaining at gmail.com and subscribe to us on iTunes as well and any other podcasting app of your choice or podcasting service and leave us reviews there. We should appreciate it. Also, I didn't realize we can get reviews on our Facebook page. Yes, so, and it's very important if we do. So yeah, leave us reviews on Facebook also. I just saw that we only had like three. One of them was like a three-star one, which I don't know who that was, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so like our, our rating was like kind of like lowish. I was like, oh, that's weird. I didn't even realize we had like a star rating on Facebook. But we do. So go on Facebook, leave us reviews. Uh, we'll appreciate that if they're nice. And we won't if they're not, honestly. Uh, that's about it. Courtney, you have feelings, thoughts about anything? Sure. Or rant we can rave? Ra- yeah, we can rant rave. Um, first of all, as Ben mentioned, we saw La La Land. Mm-hmm. It was lovely. It was delightful. I want to go see it again. I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop. And like, while I've been aware of like the La La Land backlash... Um, just being on Twitter and stuff like that. I'd kind of like intentionally stayed away from it. And I didn't really know much about what the movie was about other than the fact that it was Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, but two people who I love and love even more when they are together as evidenced by the fact that like I watched Crazy Stupid Love like twice on the flight back Mm. (laughs) just for their scenes. I love them together. Um, But yeah, it was great. I love it. Um, I'm sure that I will love all the other Oscar nominated movies as well. But La La Land was great. I don't know if you'll love all of them, but you know. Um, I can't think of ones that I wouldn't like. Uh, yeah, it's figures, true. fences. Have you seen Arrival? Um, I'm not sure how you feel about Arrival. No, I want to see Arrival. I've seen Arrival. I like Dennis Villeneuve. Um, in case it hasn't been clear, I kind of I make a lot of decisions about what movies I watch based off the writers and directors of them, less so about the actors. Mm-hmm. Although there are certain actors that are like total deal breakers to me. But um, who are your deal? Bra- yeah. Who are your deal breaker actors? Um, we're, I was just thinking about this last night even though I really love this movie. But um, why is everybody trying to make Miles Teller happen? <laughs> like, what is that? Whiplash is great. It's not great because of Miles Teller. It's great because of of, of Damien Chazelle, who um, was the writer, director, and also obviously directed La La Land. But like, like, why is everybody trying to shove Miles Teller down our throats? And I did read this about La La Land, that originally it was supposed to be Miles Teller and Emma Watson, Oh, no. Which, honestly, no. Like, no. No. Emma Watson, maybe I could see, but Miles Teller, absolutely not. Yeah. He's so, no. he, has, like, he's this, he's this, he has this real punchability so, to him. Yeah, he's just so derpy. Like, yeah. I'm like, ugh. Like, even in Whiplash, by the end of it, you kind of want him, him like, to fail. Really insufferable. 
He's like one yeah. of the most arrogant people I've heard. In well, and one of the stories about La La Land is that like they offered him four million dollars to do La La Land, and he told his agent he wanted six, and then like the negotiation fell through, and then according to Us Weekly and all of these stupid like <laughs> um, tabloidy reports, like basically like both of their agents, both Emma Emma Watson dropped out because she wanted to do. Uh, Beauty and the Beast instead, which is ironic because Ryan Gosling was supposed to be the Beast in Beauty and the Beast and then dropped out to do La La Land. Mm. Anyways, um, but yeah, apparently Emma Watson and Miles Teller are like so pissed at their agents for not landing them La La Land, which now whatever broke the record for Golden Globe nominations and um, and Oscar nominations, yeah, and Oscar nominations and all that sort of stuff. But it's just like, uh, like stop with Miles Teller. Like, what did he do? Like, seriously, what did he ever do? That was like just on him where people were like, oh, man, that guy is the future of Hollywood. Like, I've seen The Spectacular now. Great movie. He wasn't the reason that movie was great. It was a really lovely script. Um, Whiplash. Again, no, that could have been somebody else and it would have been fine. So long as they learn how to drum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, anyways. So, yeah, like Miles Teller is one of them. Um, okay. Like Ben Affleck. I pretty much, like, always watch Ben Affleck movies, like, like years later. Like, Argo was, like, going crazy. I was like, fuck that guy. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I didn't true, watch man. it until later. It's and I still was like, that was fine. It yeah. wasn't that great. My aunt and sister, who I see a lot of movies with each of them, their two deal-breaker people are for my... For one of them, I'm getting mixed up, which is which. But one of them is Amy Adams. And the other <gasps> one, which I don't really get, I guess. And the other one is Rachel McAdams. <gasps> so. Oh, those are both, like, oh, they're in it? I will go watch it. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, not to the level of, like, case do, but they're pretty up there. Uh, um, by the way. Oh, Jennifer Lawrence. Total deal breaker. Interesting. Can't stand her. Speaking Cannot of. Can't stand her. Oh, she sucks. Speaking of case do, you did a, uh, one of your sets <laughs> of your, of the final where you're doing, we were both doing gift, Second gift tweets with case yeah. do, and I'm sorry. Like, if you're trying to base, react on case do emoting, she does not emote. She is not a rich gift material person, case do, I don't think. She is because all of her emoting is so freaking weird. She is basically like, like Winona Ryder reacting to Stranger Things winning an os- <laughs> winning the Golden Globe is like case do all the time. No, like she's disagree. just so freaking awkward, which is why I love her. No, but it's not- like she's so awkward in how she processes emotion because she can't use her words, and so it just kind of like oozes out in her face no. and in her like weird like twitchy mannerisms. No, Winona Don- no, 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 no. Ryder. This was- is not. This is not the time for you to be arguing with me about case two. Fine. Leave your leave if you guys think <laughs> respond to us on Twitter or Facebook. If you think that Winona Ryder's amazing emotion and range at that acceptance experience has anything to do with case two <laughs> and what she does and doesn't do with her face, uh, just let us know because I, I certainly have feelings on that. I would much rather love people to tell us who their deal breaker movie people are because I'm curious now. Because yeah. J-, J Law is probably the most recent one where I'm like, oop, nope. Also, Bradley Cooper, which is a shame because I used to love Bradley Cooper, but I'm over that guy. He's just, I think that's kind of like, I think for him especially, it's kind of like oversaturation. Maybe. He's I just, just don't think he's so that good of an actor. Lately. And he was great when he was like younger. He was like in like part of the whole like. Amy Poehler, like, comedy troupe of people, hot, like, what yeah. Hot American Summer and, like, whatever. And then Alias, he was great. And then he, and then it's, like, Hollywood discovered that he was, like, really handsome and then made him into, like, a leading man. And ever since, I've, like, he's not bad. He's a perfectly fine actor, but there's never been anything that I watched him in where I was like, oh, man, that was tremendous. Fair. Um, so my my rave will just sort of be for the general concept of watching movies on planes 
which is how I see a huge number of movies in my life because I'm on so many planes and they almost always have good movie selections. And I don't know, I, I think people sort of bemoan it as a way to like see a movie. But for me, like it's this sort of, it's better for me in some ways than watching it at home where all sorts of things can distract me. Um, it's not like a, going to a theater, but it's cheaper in terms of incremental costs because you're already on the plane. Um, and, mo and movie theaters can be so expensive. And you just pay like perfect attention to the movie when you're on the plane, at least I do. It's like the only thing in front of you and you can lock in really well. Um, and so the particular movie, so that's a general sort of medium rave. And then the one movie- I totally agree with you. Yeah, good. Um, and then the sort of movie I saw, I saw two movies, uh, three, I saw, I watched the old Beauty and the Beast again on the plane, which I'd seen before. So that was lovely. And it was good sort of mood setter. And then I watched Hell or High Water, which is one of the best picture nominees, which was pretty good. I'm not like as blown away by it as everybody else is, but I, I enjoyed it. And then I watched Birdman, which I'd never seen and Thoughts? did not like it. Thank you I very know, much. I know you hate this movie. And so I was ready to say that and make you happy. But it's just like, it's so... It's just obnoxious as a thing to like feel need to put out into the world. Like it just didn't need to exist. This movie. And really and I will say this because Birdman is very much in the realm. Like because I watched Whiplash last night because I've obviously been in like La La Land world and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna go rewatch Whiplash, Whiplash because yeah, you should watch it um, because it's actually it, Whiplash deals with a lot of the same themes as La La Land, but in obviously a very different way, but. Damien Chazelle is like very obsessed with like the idea of like dreams and what are the sacrifices that you make to fulfill your ambition and to achieve that. And it's a lot about the sacrifices. And and the question in Whiplash is very similar to the question at the end of La La Land, which is like, are those sacrifices worth it? Like, are we better off making the sacrifices or not? And if we if we achieve our dreams, what have we left behind? What have we lost? Et cetera, et cetera. So both Whiplash and La La Land kind of deal with that. But anyways, so Birdman, it's not that it doesn't, it kind of deals with dreams, but like from a more cynical perspective, right? Kind of about fame and about, yeah, again, like what do you sacrifice and what are you willing to give up to reclaim, I suppose, that 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 place in your, like that that you want, that you think that you deserve or et cetera, et cetera. But like, man, after like, now sitting here thinking about how Whiplash handled generally similar themes and how like La La Land handled it in totally two different ways. Like, I just really hate Birdman. It was just like, it was just so obnoxious as a movie. Just like, in all these like, especially like there, a lot of like uh, things are made to look like they were all one take for long stretches of it and things like that. And just this sort of just like- and for no purpose. For no purpose, right. And just sort of these like show-offy things it did cinematographically. Which just yeah. like, ugh, we get it. Like, you made a movie. Congratulations. You know, right. it's just like all of that was just over the top. And for me, I mean, some of it was interesting, I guess. But parts of it, it just overall, as a best picture winner, no. Just no. Yep. And no. yeah, and, and, I, ha and I haven't seen, Rev I've seen parts of The Revenant. Um, but I, I think it. I think it's just an inner redo kind of thing. Just a lot of like sort of show-offy, you know, uh, um, braggy movie making it's just very right. very uh self-satisfied and it's very testosterone driven like filmmaking in a it's like like to me oh man i'm about to do a hot take right now that's gonna get me into a lot of trouble like i don't personally see any difference not any difference that's overstating things but like there's a lot in common between inuritu and michael bay 
to me in my book. Mm-hmm. It's it's testosterone laden. It's it's look what I can do. It's it's just a big wank. It, like it's just, it's just like, like it's, a it's dude like wanking but, on screen. Yeah, yeah. They're not like they're not the same kind of explosions. Obviously, that that sort of yeah, they're, in, they're more intellectual, right? But they're still yeah. but they're still just like ramped up as much and everything dialed to eleven. And yeah, it's just there's no. He has the. Um, I'm trying to think of what the you know he's the touch of an axe murderer. Well, um, but the, what's so disappointing about that is like his previous movies. It's almost like the guy, he's the indie. He's the indie guy who like, gr- like that was like a nerd, and then like grew up and became like, the guy like all the girls wanted to sleep with. Like you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like because like his old movies, like Amoris Peros, amazing. Twenty One Grams, great. Um, Babel even, which he was only a producer on, but it, like you know it was great. Um, but like. Yeah, his previous movies, he had, like, such a more deft touch in, in what he was trying to do. And then ever since, like, I don't know, ever since Beautiful, he's been just, like, Birdman was just offensive. The Revenant is basically that, but set in the winter. It's just, and it's just, oh, I can't. It makes me so mad, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> no, I remember, I get I really remember, you, I remember your rant at the time when this movie came out, so I knew I was going to reawaken something within you, and I feel like I've gotten that, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. Uh, and yeah, so go see good movies on planes or not. Don't watch Birdman. Maybe hate watch Birdman. I don't know. I mean, if you haven't seen it, it was. I'm glad I saw it finally. Now it's I a perfectly have... fine movie. Like you know what I mean. Like again, these arguments undercut what my previous argument was before, which is like, just because you like hidden figures doesn't mean that like you know La La Land is a shit movie. Like as I was telling Ben, it's not Crash. Like it's it's still a very good movie. Like all movies are great, and Birdland is the same. Birdman's the same. It's a great movie, but. I hate that Hollywood rubber stamped that type of filmmaking. And same with like The Revenant. Like I hate that that is what people said is good direction. Like that pisses it me off. It, sh- wouldn't, it sh- wouldn't be what I reward, you know? Right, exactly. Like things can be good and they don't have to be rewarded. This is the whole argument about Casey Affleck and Manchester by the Sea and his nomination. The fact that like the Academy is basically, you know, rubber stamping, you know, sexual assault and all these sorts of things. And I think that I kind of buy that as an argument. While I understand this general idea of like, oh, you should separate the art from the artist um, and whatever. It's like, yeah, no one's stopping Casey Affleck from taking that role and acting the shit out of it and being amazing. But like you as an Academy have a responsibility to decide at the end of the day what you want to reward and therefore what you want to see money being funded towards in the future. And so to the extent that you then reward these sorts of like masculine, I'm not even going to call the Casey Affleck thing a masculine thing. That's just dick. But like, you know, to the extent that you reward this type of filmmaking, it's really, really frustrating. I don't know what the Casey Affleck thing is. Oh, he was, um, he was, uh, what was it, charged with? Or there was a civil suit against him Mm. for uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault. Okay. Um, and, uh, and it's been completely like, everybody's kind of ignoring it, generally speaking. That's why I have heard of it, yeah. Yeah, with respect to kind of like him in his performance in Manchester by the was Sea. Was it recent which or was it a while ago? Mm, hold on. I don't want to speak out of turn on this, so let me. 2010. Okay. So, yeah, the allegations, I guess, came out around 2010, or at least that's when it happened with, like, the sexual harassment and stuff from 
um, the set of a movie that he was on. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. just, you know, no one really talks about it. No one. And everybody's basically like, yeah, they, they're not going to stick. And, you know, he's probably going to get an Oscar for this. And yeah, that's just, you know, again, he can do his movies just like Woody Allen can do his movies. And, you know, and, and I love Woody Allen movies, but like, does, do we need to reward that art and say that this is what we stand for? Yeah, it's interesting. We don't have to. Yeah, you, you, know? you don't have to. It's interesting. Each person can make their up their own mind about whether or not things disqualify your votes or how much, you know, you vote on merit. I mean, on a completely different scale, it reminds me a little bit of the conversation about like voting for Russia Eurovision. If you have problems with them, right. you know, being homophobic and invading Ukraine, but they have the best song, what do you do? You know, and it's up to right. each person. So, yeah, I get that. The, it was the best song. Be messy. Yeah. <laughs> no arguments here. Well, I'll leave you with I'll leave you with that. Still bitter. I'll leave you with that. So with, with the with the one that you liked, I don't think it was the best. 2016 Russia absolutely was the best. 2015. The one with the, the, the girl, the skinny girl I that I thought wasn't her. singing. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I liked her. I'll play that one. Do a million voices. I, it was like. Sure. It like made me it made me cry, sadly. Russia totally manipulated my emotions. They manipulate a lot of things these days. Well, that's true. Bye bye guys. But her emails. <laughs> Pray for peace and healing. I hope we can start again. We believe, we believe in the dream. So if you ever feel the love is fading, together like the stars in the sky, we can see, we can shine. Yeah.